Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, here's what we're going to do. Today, I have one goal. We're just going to cover three verses, which is uh, a, a, a shorter text than we usually cover on a Sunday morning. And my one goal is just to give us, a, sort of a stir our affections, to give us a picture of what the Bible says about what it means to be part of a local church and really the importance of the local church and why the local church as uh, just the group of believers that believe in Jesus, that gather together and have committed to one another, is so absolutely central in God's plan and therefore in the life of, of a believer. And so I think I'm speaking to two different people, types of people that fall into two categories. Either Crosspoint is your home church and you're here and you're already committed to this local church. Man, I, I want you to just sort of revel in this. I want you to, to take new and fresh joy in what we're doing here as as we read these verses, if you're not a member of a local church or maybe you're not a Christian, I want to warmly but clearly prod you and encourage you and let you see from scriptures this beautiful gift of the body of Christ that God has given us. And I, and I want it to kind of nudge you and, and in a sort of warm way make you uncomfortable and cause you to sort of disrupt your life so that you would see this, this beautiful things that God has given us, this beautiful thing called the body of Christ, the local church, as the means by which we can be assured that we are in fact Christians and the means by which he gives us to encourage one another so that collectively together we might be a sort of display, a sneak preview of heaven here on earth. In fact, that verse that Kwame read before is our call to worship, that, that verse about when God will dwell together finally and fully and complete with his, with his people. There shall be no more tears, there will be no more pain, and there will be no more crying, there will be no more sin, there will be no more hypocrisy, that God will dwell with his people. What the church is to be, every little dusty outpost, every little imperfect local church like Crosspoint, is to be a sort of sneak preview, a sort of outpost, an imperfect one, certainly, an outpost of heaven to cause believers and unbelievers to see and savor Jesus Christ. And so, and that's what we're going to do today, and and then we're going to be done. Um, So let's do this. Let's read from the last three verses of Ephesians 2 and get after it. I'm going to read and pray three truths. Then we're going to work our way through this thing that we call our one another covenant. And then uh, we're going to respond to the Lord in worship. Let me read these three beautiful verses and pray. Paul writes to the Ephesians, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you that we can gather together 
and think about these things. Lord, for the people in this room who are already followers of Christ, who are believers in Jesus, who, have, who are putting their trust in what Christ has done on the cross as the sole sacrifice for our sins, absorbing all of your justice and wrath for our rebellion, and has defeated that by rising again in victory over death and sin. For, for those of us who have trusted in that, I pray, Lord, that you would stir our affections as we pray so often for you and for your people. For those that are in this room that are not yet followers of Jesus, they are not yet believers in you, whether they think they are and truly aren't or whether they realize they're not and they're just here today. Lord, I'm very grateful that those friends are here today, but Lord, would it not just be another couple hours on a Sunday morning in the South? Lord, would you cause them to pass from death to life? Would you give them eyes to see? Would you give them a new heart that they can breathe faith and trust in you? And Lord, then as we come around uh, this text, would we respond in worship and would you give your people joy and bring yourself much glory? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's this text here that we've been working through in Ephesians 1 and 2, and I hope you've noticed kind of a progression. Ephesians 1 just speaks about the glory and grandeur of our salvation and what God has done in Christ to reconcile people to himself. Then chapter 2 is the first 10 verses, just primarily, I think, probably the best synopsis of the gospel, maybe in the whole Bible. And then the second half of chapter 2 that we've been working through shows how God reconciles us not just to himself, but also to one another. And last week we kind of considered on a global sense how God reconciles Jew to Gentile. And in our context, people to one another, different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic groups, and reconciles people together so that we can, we can not be sort of on this sort of wall of our own righteousness shooting pot shots at people who aren't as good as us in some areas, but it sort of humbles us. That's what Christ's work on the cross does. And these three verses sort of narrowed down the, the shot group, so to speak. It narrows down the lens and looks specifically at what I think life should be like together as a local church. These are three of the most important verses. This is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible that speaks about what local churches are all about. And so there's a couple things I want you to notice before we get to these three truths that I, I want to draw on and then work our way through our covenant as a church. The first is, I want you to notice that the Bible speaks in stark realities about those who are in and those who are out. You realize that it calls them, and he just uses this language. Paul doesn't shudder. He's not particularly seeker sensitive as he writes this letter. He says then, you are no longer strangers and aliens with the obvious implied thought that you once were. So the Bible is very clear. There, there's either... There's only two types of people in the world, those that are God's people who are trusting in Christ and those that have not. Now certainly there's people that are in the process of being drawn by God, by His Spirit. And that may very well be some of you in this room, but do you realize just the stark reality? I think we get just get lulled to sleep in America, don't we? We sort of have this category of you know, Christians that we associate with in our local church and then kind of wicked people 
And then basically the relatively good folks that we interact with on a daily basis who seem to be relatively moral. You know, they're not connected, no confession of Christ. They don't have any church family, not living for the Lord in any sort of real biblical way. But we're just, we just shudder at the thought that maybe they're not, you know, really favored by God. Maybe they're not Christians. And the, Bible, Bible, the Bible doesn't parse it up like that. It's clear. You're in or you're out. You're an alien or you're a child of God. And, and I think that we, uh, we don't naturally think that way. And we need to let the Bible inform the way we think. I also want you to notice then just the, the intensifying of the intimacy of the metaphors that Paul gives us there to describe the church. He starts out and he says that you, you're citizens. You're citizens of this thing called the kingdom of God. You're saints. You're, 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 you're now part of this sort of entity, this country, this new this new kingdom, right? But then he doesn't just stop there with you know, a citizenship, which is kind of impersonal. You know, we, we, just, we just got our, Joseph and I, I had to renew my passport and got Joseph his passport. And it's kind of something cool about getting your passport in the mail and it looks real official and there's all this seal of the United States. And, you know, I mean, I thank God that I'm an American. But, you know, I don't feel any real close personal connection in, in a real deep sort of way with the other 300 million Americans. I mean, I, I do with some of you who are Americans, and, and you know, I'm very thankful that I'm American, and I've served our country in the military, and pay my taxes. I'm not always real happy about it. Um, you know, we've got a lot of problems in our country, but you know, the, paves, the roads are usually paved, and the mail gets there on time. It was a pretty good gig being American, you know? But, but he, he doesn't just stop there with citizenship, which is a great thing, but not particularly personal. He goes into now we're, we're a family. He says we're members of the household of God. So he intensifies the metaphor from citizenship down to family. So we're, we're brothers and sisters together. We're, in fact, he says we're saints, which I think is a tough thing for us to think about. Like, really, I'm a saint? When I think of saint, I think of maybe some old lady that's been going to church for a long time, serving people, you know, folding bulletins at churches, praying, knitting blankets for babies. I mean, I, I, don't, even, I don't even think of myself particularly as a saint. But, but I think that's what the Bible calls us. And we think instantly, oh, we're hypocrites. The church is full of the church. Of course the church is full of hypocrites. You're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. Welcome to the merry band of hypocrites who the Bible also simultaneously calls saints. I mean, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Chew on that for a little while. Wrestle with that. This is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said. He said, uh, in, it was this Latin phrase, he said, I, I, can't, I don't have it memorized, it's like simul justus et peccator. He says, so simultaneously, in Latin he's saying we are both just and sinful. And that's the story of what it means to be a Christian. We are, we are, we are at once saved, we are brought from death to life, but we're not perfected in the reality of our life in that moment. We're made perfect in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's work, not our sin, but we still have this process of sanctification. So that explains a thousand different ills. That explains a thousand different hypocrisies in the life of every Christian. We are both sinner and saint. We are righteous because of what Christ has done, but still very much in process. So here's, here's my question. Uh, young man or young woman or old man or old woman that is struggling with some habitual sin or maybe some past sin, and you have let some past failure or voice of condemnation define who you are? Do you realize that the Bible calls you a saint? 
and that the truest thing about you is not right now your failure, but the righteousness of Christ that has been applied to you because of your trust in Him. You realize how often Christians covet their own struggle and battle against sin as a, a sort of more powerful thing than Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness on the cross. And so, so we're both simultaneously just and sinner at the same time. It's called sanctification. But he, but he doesn't just stop there. So he, d- he takes the citizen uh, picture. He whittles it down to the family. And then he goes even deeper to that than that. And he says in verse 20, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so not only are we citizens of the same kingdom as Christians, not only are we family, brothers and sisters, but now we're actually one building. We are, we are a temple that is the dwelling place of God. I mean, just that's a beautiful, beautiful, intensifying of metaphors there about what we are as Christians. All right, so now three enormous truths that I see from this text, and then we're going to work our way through a very important uh, statement for us as, as Christians together in this local church. Truth number one from this text is that the gospel is bigger than individual salvation. And what I mean by the gospel is not just some sort of, um, you know, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or, you know, Jesus is your best friend, or, you know, I know the plans that I have for you. I mean, all those things maybe have elements of truth in them and are sort of uh, poor American adaptations of biblical truth. What I mean by the gospel is, is that we are sinners and God is righteous and holy and in God's providence he allowed for and in fact planned for human rebellion which we have all participated in and our rebellion has made us enemies of God. It hasn't just neutralized us and made us less effective here in our life or made us less happy. It has made us enemies and God haters. That's the clear witness of scripture. And God has, in spite of our hatred of him in our self-worship and idolatry, whether we are public criminals or whether we are just self-righteous, moralistic, religious people, we are all, by nature, God-haters. And in spite of this, God has come to us in our rebellion, and he has taken on human flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, has come and taken on flesh. He lived a perfect life here on this earth. He stored up obedience to God's ways and his laws. And he laid down his perfect perfect life as a sacrifice, as a substitute, as a go-between between a holy God and us as rebellious, sinful people. We were running away from God. God came to us in the form of Jesus. His son lived a perfect life and then laid down that perfect life to satisfy the holiness of God to appease the justice of a holy, righteous, sovereign creator. And what he did when he died on the cross is he was a go-between. He took and absorbed all of God's judgment for the sin of all those that would be his people and turn and trust in what Jesus has done alone. And on his 
death on the cross, he absorbed God's judgment. And then he rose again in victory. So now he's alive. And because he's alive, he can give life. And he gives life to his people. And so now all who trust in him and believe in what Jesus has done on the cross as a soul sacrifice to satisfy God's holiness now are his children. That's what I mean by the gospel. And so the gospel, though, is bigger than just individual salvation because, man, we're, I mean, we're Americans, aren't we? I mean, we are the sons and daughters of the people that, you know, landed in the East Coast and, 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 and just conquered the West, man. That's what, that's what we do. We just keep moving West and have a little stake and we stick a stake in the ground and we cut out an acre and we farm it and we mule that bad boy and we build businesses and we have individual... We're individuals, aren't we? Man, civil liberties... That's what we are. That's the culture we grow up in. And so for us to think about anything other than ourselves is unnatural for Americans. But the gospel, as we see in this text, is about more than just our individual sort of fire insurance or procurement of our eternity. The gospel, Jesus' work on the cross to make us part of his people, calls us to be brothers and sisters together, this temple that's together together. And so there's no one-man show. There's no one-woman show in the life of a Christian. We're called to be together. So the gospel's bigger than individual salvation. Secondly, whittling it down here, we are made for biblical community as members of a local church. We're made for that. Friends, you need that. If you're a Christian, you need. You need to be connected, committed, and part of a local church. And I think you need to commit to being a member of a local church. Is there anywhere you can find in the Bible the church The phrase church membership, no. Can you find the phrase? No. But can you find the concept? Yes. We see in the early church, in the New Testament, baptism as being a sign of entrance into this family of faith. We see as we went through for about half of a year, uh, uh, at the beginning part of this year, when we went through 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 5, we saw this chapter about a brother who was part of this local body of believers called the Corinthian church. And we saw that he was sinning, doing something egregious with his stepmom. And Paul writes to this church and he says, put this brother out from among you. So if he can be put out, you you can be in, right? So there's this sort of obvious understanding in the New Testament that there is this church that everybody knew who they were. And then later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, whether it's speaking about that person or another person, it says that whoever this person is that has been sort of excommunicated from the church, it says the punishment that the majority has put on him is enough. Now, receive this person back into the fold. And so there's this clear sense in the New Testament that, that there is this group of people who are committing themselves, that are understand who is in and out, who are members of this local body. And in Hebrews, listen to this, this verse makes no sense. It makes no sense unless there's local congregations of people who are committed to one another, who know who is part of the church and who isn't. In our vernacular today, we call that membership. This is what Hebrews says in verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So who are your leaders? If you're a Christian, who do you know who your leaders are? If you're a member of this church, the elders are your leaders. But I'm a member of this church, and so Reynolds and and Don, Lord willing, other elders in the future have a special responsibility to lead me and shepherd me. 
but other Christians, although I may have good fellowship with other Christians and other churches, they don't really have any special responsibility to lead me. And they're not really responsible for having watch and care over my soul. And it says here clearly that these leaders are given and that they have to stand before God and give an account. Do you have anybody that you know is doing that for you? And then here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, let me read this beautiful verse. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who, who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Listen to this now. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So do we, in a sort of general sense, have a responsibility to the Christian brother or sister who we work with at Tesis or an Aflac at the cubicle next to us? Well, yes, of course. But we have clearly a special responsibility to those who we are joined with in a local church together with. And so I think from this text, we can, and many other texts in the New Testament, just understand that the context of the New Testament is local people in commitment to each other as part of the local body of Christ. And then thirdly, the third truth is that the church exists to be a dwelling place for God. The church exists to be a dwelling place for God. So just compare that to what our normal instinct is to think about what the church is about here as Christians, as American Christians. Kind of an optional thing maybe lower down on the priority. But Paul is saying here that the church is, this collective group of people, is a dwelling place for God here on the earth. And so, so how does the way most American kind of cultural Christians how we view the church, how does that jive with what the Bible is saying? I mean, just think about the gap between the way our culture sort of views the local church and the way the Bible is viewing the local church. That This very thing, so does God live in each individual Christian? Yes, of course, we know that from other scriptures. But in a more distinct way, in a community sort of way, this group of people, this dusty little group of imperfect people in the corner of Georgia here called Cross Point Church, along with other churches that believe in Jesus and believe in the Bible, Presbyterians and Baptists and non-denominational people and Pentecostals and Episcopalians and, 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 and you know, my dog is bigger than your dog, Holy Temple or whatever. I mean, all the crazy names we give churches, all the different little secondary beliefs that we may differ on. It's this, these little dusty imperfect, full of hypocrites, pardoned rebel congregations all over the world, different languages, different cultures, different foods, different worship styles, different preaching styles, all of them coming together, centering on this one great truth that Jesus died to atone for the sin of his people and is the only mediator between a sinful mankind and a holy God and all who trust in him are his people all across the world millions of different of congregations together part of this one great universal church of God become these little local expressions of it called the local church and God in his scripture says that in a peculiar and particular way those 
local congregations are where he dwells. Contrast that with just sort of the laissez-faire, lackadaisical kind of ho-hum sort of perspective that many people have, an even critical view that they have of the local church, people that have been hurt maybe. And there's just kind of this sarcastic sort of view of the church. It's something that we feel like we have to put up with. But, you know, I've been hurt. That's a full of bunch of hypocrites. You know, it's just kind of, I've, I've given this analogy before. But um, yesterday, December 17th, was Jennifer and I's 17th anniversary. And um, so 17 years ago, I was a young lieutenant at Fort Benning. And we were married across the street at Evangel Temple, which is where Jennifer grew up. And um, on that day, um, she was as beautiful as ever. I was, you know, I, at that time I still just had one eyebrow. I didn't realize that I could trim the middle. Um, <laughs> and I had my ranger haircut on and uh, was, I was a little lighter on my feet. Um, but I'll tell you this, when those doors opened up in the back of the sanctuary and she walked down that aisle, um, I'll tell you this. If anybody in the congregation that day would have said, as Jennifer was walking down the aisle, as my bride would have said, that dress doesn't fit. <laughs> she didn't look that good. Who did her hair? Where'd she get those flowers? Uh, I, I, along with my brother and my dad, and anybody else that was related to me would have, uh, would have uh, unmanned our post, and we would have come across the aisle. And I mean, I, I would have come down like with, that, with the jackknife, and my brother would have busted you across the jaw and we would have, we would have we, we went to town right there on you. You don't criticize my bride. But, but just think about the way the Christians talk about the church. Who are the bride of Christ? I mean, come on. You're not talking, you're not busting on Brad Evangelista's bride. You're busting on Jesus' bride when you just cynically, sarcastically bust on the church. And so, 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 so come on, how do, we, how do we view it? So the church exists to be a dwelling place for God, for God here in this earth. So we cannot overstate the importance of the local church. How then, and I end with this now as we're going to read through this together, how then should we live together? A little over a year ago, we as a church adopted this, this covenant, this church covenant that we call our one another covenant. You have it in your bulletins, and I realize it's small print so I'm just going to read through it and make a few comments and we're going to put it up on the screen and then then we'll respond and worship together if you're a member of cross point church this is what we in our member meetings together recite together this is what we go through in our membership class this is what I think it means to be a, a Christian united together with other Christians Realizing that there are other many good churches. There are other better churches than us, even here in this city. But we, we are as a little outpost of heaven. As a little band of pardoned rebels. Trying to live for something bigger than ourselves. And we have committed to live together with this compilation of statements that is basically just a summary of New Testament truth about how we should live together. So I'm going to read it. Read I'm going to read it and listen to me as I read these things. And if you're a member of Crosspoint, let your heart be stirred for what we hope to be. Do we fail in these things that I'm going to read? Yes, all the time. This is what we're going for. If you're not a member of a local church, let your heart be stirred and convicted. Why aren't you? And if you're not a Christian yet, I mean, just 
I just pray that by God's grace, he would just paint such an irresistible picture of Jesus and his body to you that you, you realize how incomplete your life is and that you are wired to be connected to the bride of Christ. This is what we write in our covenant. Having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, resolve to live by faith, and so establish this covenant with one another. And friends, when we say covenant, we realize this isn't some sort of legal document. This is a spiritual, a spiritual confession together, realizing that we're going to break these things all the time. We don't hold this as a sort of gotcha document. We realize that we walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all we do, we will aim to glorify and enjoy the God of our salvation, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To Him be glory forever. Friends, we want to enjoy God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, that great Protestant confession of faith that's been around for, for several hundred years, the first question, it says, what is the chief end of man? To know God and enjoy Him, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Friends, we're not here to just come up with a list of rules and not go to rated R movies or not drink alcohol around anybody that we know might know and you know, not cuss, don't drink, smoke, chew, go out with boys or girls that do. I mean, come on, friends. The Christianity, if you've, if you've bought into the lie that it's just a list of rules, you, you, you've completely missed that the whole point of the Scriptures is to glorify God and then His people would walk in joy continues and says, we will eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by walking together in love and in, in the Spirit and by putting away all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. So it's not okay to gossip about one another. It's not okay, like we talked about last week, to get up on our little ladders and scaffolding and walls of self-righteousness and look down the end of our nose at brothers and sisters who are struggling or who, who their lives, is like ours, are filled with hypocrisy. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up. Listen to this. Exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing one another when necessary. All of us need to be committed to do this. It's not just the responsibility of a few to shepherd, but that we would care for one another when we don't see a brother or sister, that we go after them, that there's this sort of broken-hearted boldness as we encourage one another, you know? Sometimes we don't engage one another in difficult conversations because we think about, oh, well, look at the sin in my life, you know? I, I don't really have the right to talk to that person about maybe something I see in their life, but do you see what we're doing in situations like that? Look, look, none of us are qualified in and of our own righteousness to have any sort of difficult conversation with another Christian. But that's not what qualifies us. We're, we're supposed to really prefer our brother or sister by, by getting over our sort of insecurity and saying, hey, bro, man, how you doing, man? I, I see this. What, what's going on? How, where you been? How are you? And there's this beautiful sort of brokenhearted boldness that should captivate a group of people who are together in a local household of faith. We will carry each other's burdens Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. You know, I've always had this sort of um, conviction, even since when I became a Christian early on when I was 18 years old, that sometimes Christians sort of try and trick themselves into being happy all the time. You know, and it, it just, it doesn't actually jive with real life. And so there's this sort of false sort of exterior that you feel like you have to put up. In fact, I think, I think sometimes 
church culture sort of makes you act like you have it all together too soon when nobody really has it all together. And there's just a bunch of happy, happy songs like, hey, brother, how you doing? Oh, bless the Lord. I'm doing great. Oh, no joy. And then we have all these happy songs. Everybody's always happy, happy, happy. But, but, but then I'm like coming across half the Bible and it's like, the pro- I mean, there's a book of the Bible called Lamentations, which means to lament. And like half of the Psalms are just imprecatory Psalms where, where the writer's saying, God bust my enemy's teeth over the rocks. Or, God, where are you? And it's like we, we haven't built that into American Christianity. We all got to be happy. I mean, it's just, it's not realistic. It's goofy. It's weird. It's detached from reality. And, and, and these verses, this, this covenant comes from scriptures like Romans 12 that says, Rejoice, you should be the best partiers and you should be the most God-centered mourners in all of the world because we, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep because we care deeply for each other and it's okay not to always be happy when you come in here and we don't have to sing happy songs all the time. Matter of fact, maybe we should do that. Paul, Terry, a couple of other songwriters, write like a song from Psalm 13. Oh God, how long will you hide yourself from me? Let's just sing that one Sunday. I mean, really. Now we should sing happy songs too. But we need to weep, man. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be busted up. We will train our children in the instruction of the Lord. Seeking to walk in a way that adorns the gospel of Christ before our family, friends, and neighbors. Friends, all of us live in a sort of mix. All of us come from families that are broken. All of us have people that we love that don't know Jesus. I mean, we all live right smack dab in the middle of a mission field that God has given us to sort of live, man, to live in such a way. Do you see that as we live in such a way that literally we're being like little evangelists, we're being little missionaries in the cubicle or in the living room or at, the, at grandma's house for Thanksgiving. I mean, come on, we want to live in a careful sort of God-oriented way so that we would adorn, that we would give, that we would give a sort of visible picture of what we believe as we raise our children and do life together. And friends, let me just one thing. Dads, dads, this is your primary responsibility to raise kids, man, to, to be the leader in your family. It doesn't mean you need to be the guy that's Mr. Vocal or you need to, but it's your responsibility to, man, to set the temple spiritually in your family. If your wife is dragging you around to church and to, if, she is, if she is setting the tempo spiritually for you, and I pray that the Holy Spirit and other men would come around you and kick you in your rear end so you are so uncomfortable that you just have to do something. One of the great ills of our society is male passivity. Dudes that can lead companies, but they can't even sit down with their family and pray with them. I mean, come on, I, we're, I'm not beating you up, man. But I'm just saying, come on, bro, this is a place where you can be spurred on by another man who's not perfect, but who's a little bit ahead of you. And there is a church full of dudes who can come alongside you in grace and help you with that. Don't be a bump on the log, man. We need men who, like, stand up and take it in the chin and who lead their families and read the Bible to their kids and, and, and are here serving. We got to 
church full of them. And if you're not that guy, let me tell you something. You can become that guy, not by just reaching down deep inside you for the greatest love of all, or by watching some MMA, or by, you know, like going home and watch Tebow this afternoon and get all fired up. No, you can do that because Christ died for you, and he didn't only take away your sin, he gave you his righteousness. And so as a man, you don't have to be some buff dude. You don't have to be some infantry ranger. You don't have to be some mechanic, some big muscle head. you got to be a dude who sticks it in the ground and says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you can do that, young man, by leaning on the righteousness of Christ, which is yours and is all around you and other brothers. Man, come on, come on, come, come on. Let's play. Let's do this together, guys. We will seek by God's help to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week I talked about how we tend to swing between being legalists, you know, the list of things we can't do, and some of us swing over to just license, you know, just whatever we want to do, we can do it. I believe in Jesus, so what? You know, and I was talking to a brother this week, and he, he was explaining me. He was saying, hey, man, I see what you're saying, Brad, but I kinda, I'm both. I'm a legalist, and I'm, a, and I kinda, and I'm like, yeah, me too, man. I know exactly what you're talking about. Things I can do well, I'm a legalist. The things that I have trouble with, and I just want grace, man, I'm like, grace. You know, don't we do that? But here, here, here's what this is saying. It's saying, like, with God's help. And with each other's help, we want to live carefully in this world because there's something bigger than just our freedom. It's, it's a display. It's the adorning of the gospel so that God might be pleased to use our, our life, our struggle, our sanctification, our carefulness as a witness to somebody. Let me tell you, there's nothing more enjoyable than having your life be used as a means by God the advancement of his gospel in somebody else's life. There's nothing more pleasurable than that. We will not neglect to gather together, but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, the faithful observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the loving exercise of church discipline. Friends, I mean, the scriptures are clear. We need to get together. It's not a priority in your life. Man, make it. I just plead with you. I know we live in a busy age. I know that child sports and activities and all sorts of stuff crowd against it. And one of the best things you can do, dads, to serve your families well is to prioritize the gathering together of your family with your church family. And one of the best things we can do when we get together here is to preach the whole counsel of God's word. That's why we just kind of go through the Bible. That's why we, that's why we work through 1 Corinthians, work through Ephesians, and we're just going to handle the tough topics. That's why you guys know that I can't skip anything. So if I'm, you know, we're in Ephesians, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we finish, and I'm like, ooh, chapter 5 is a little dicey. There's this guy that's having some sort of bad relationship with his stepmom. Oh, let's just skip to chapter 6. If I got here the next Sunday and said, oh, let's go to chapter 6, you guys would be, whoa, time out, wimp. I mean, where's chapter 5? Give me some chapter 5, brother. That's, we're going to preach the whole thing. Ephesians 1, predestination. What, what, I mean, that's hard stuff. We're just going to cover it getting too excited here. This was supposed to be a light message. <laughs> All right, we'll finish this up. We will contribute cheerfully, generously, and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel, both to our neighbors and the nations. Wayne mentioned it earlier. Man, what a, God uses the means of our generosity. What a witness of the gospel that Christians just give away 
their resources for the sake of the gospel. Has God made you wealthy? He didn't make you wealthy to blow your life and waste your life on recreation. Has God made you struggle? He's not holding out some blessing. He's not, this is health and wealth prosperity gospel that's so false. He's not, if you will just confess this thing, then all of a sudden God will make you rich. Maybe God made you wealthy so that you would be radically generous. Maybe God has made you poor so that you would be radically dependent on God. Either way, Christians need to be generous, giving away our stuff, having a loose hand with all that is God has given us so that we might show that there's something more preferable than these 80 years in retirement. We will, when we move from this place, unite as soon as possible with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Man, if you're in the military, don't get in the habit of never really getting connected in church. I remember, I remember Jennifer and I went to Fort Stewart and we were just kind of humming around. Man, don't, don't be like that. Get connected, even if you're only at a church for six months, man. Don't, don't learn the spiritual habit of, of always being kind of on the exterior. In all these things, we rely on our God who has made a new and everlasting covenant with us. See, friends, there, we're not relying on our own strength to, to live up to these things. We're relying on God who's made a covenant with us. He says in Jeremiah 32, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and with all my soul. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Two questions. Christian, do you love the church? Do you love the church? If the Holy Spirit's hitting you right now, saying you need to love it more, yeah, then don't, don't harden your heart. Second question to my friend who may not be a believer yet here. Do you see how beautiful, you see this beautiful gift that God has given us? He's given us Christ to atone for your sin, to finally and fully make you right with him. And he's given you a people to love you and serve you and to make your life about something much bigger than you and your little 80 years and your doubts. How could you not love him? Turn right now from trusting in yourself. Turn right now from the echo chamber that you've lived your life in. How do you know you're right? How do you know that the wisdom that you're banking on is right. You're, you're, you're one guy, one gal, really? Are, are you willing to stand before the creator of the universe and say, you know, I think I got this figured out. I didn't really need the way you wrote it out in the Bible. Turn from trusting in yourself and turn and trust in Jesus right now. You don't need to fill out a card. You don't need to repeat some prayer after me right now. Believe in Jesus Look to him and say, Jesus, forgive me. You are the only means to make me right with God. I believe in you. And when you go to Jesus, you know what you're simultaneously doing? You're leaving sin. You're leaving self-trust. You're leaving self-righteousness. And you're going to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come now, I pray that you would help us, that you would stir our 
our love for the church. Lord, if there are Christians in this room who are on the fringe or because of maybe some bad previous experience, they have a cynical and sarcastic view of your bride. Lord, would you warm their hearts? Would you convict them? And would you, by your Holy Spirit, show them that they need to be a part of either this local church or some other Bible-believing local church? And for the friends that are already part of this church, would you warm our hearts for one another? Would you reorder our priorities? And would you, or would you just fill us with a deep love for each other? And Lord, for my friends that are not yet believers in Jesus, can you do what only you can do? Can, can you just cause the scales to fall from their eyes so that they would see you, they would see Jesus? Lord, I don't want them to just hear from this that, People need to be members of a local... Lord, that means nothing if they haven't trusted in you. I'm not trying to get people to join this church or some other thing. I'm just preaching the text. And this is where we are, where Paul talks about how beautiful and important it is to be part of this local part of the body of Christ. But Lord, for my friend that may be here that's not a believer yet, Lord, would you just cause them to see? Would you give them a new heart? Would you, would you just warm their heart? Would you... Would you just give them the ability to hate sin and to love you and to trust in you right now? Would you do that, I pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.